Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we're back in our studio here in Connecticut, but we've got a really special guest on our podcast today, all the way from Melbourne, Australia, Helen McGregor. How are you, Helen? I'm well, thank you. As best as I can be. <laughs> yes, I know before we I hit the record button, we talked a bit. Uh, about what you're going through, which we're going to get into. But I'm excited. I know we connected via social media not too long ago. We had some scheduling conflicts with my calendar, your calendar, which we're going to talk about, again, what you're, what's going on in your life right now. But this is exciting. This is you win the award for the farthest podcast guest we've ever had over a hundred episodes on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So it's awesome. So, and I want to get into this. So as tradition that we do with all our podcast guests, this is your opportunity, Helen, to share as much of your background with our audience. We've got a very vast audience that listen to us from survivors and fighters, family members, caregivers, uh, participants, athletes, um, and we do a lot here in the United States with running, with fitness. Uh, we do our own run walks, so we've got a really diverse audience. Um, but as I always tell our guests, you can go as far back as high level. The choice is yours. Okay, so um, I am a single mum, and I was working full time in advertising in the creative field. And um, life was pretty good and um, I was very active and never really unwell. I don't get the common cold or such. I just, um, yeah, just keep going. And um, in 2018, it would have been around June and July, I started getting um, some, just feeling unwell. And... um, I had uh, stomach pains, uh, vomiting, uh, nausea and didn't really think too much of it at the start and me being me just kept on going but it was getting to a stage where I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was going jaundice and this all happened within literally a week and it was so onset. I had had a little bit of the jaundice on and off in my eyes, but I just thought maybe been going out too much or something. <laughs> Partying um, too hard. <laughs> a little, maybe. Um, but I um, got really unwell really quickly, so I took myself to emergency after I got my son to school and organised all the animals and everything I knew I was going in to hospital. Um, I was that unwell. Anyway, I was, um, they took myself to emergency. They ran some tests. My liver function was not working. So I spent the next two and a half weeks in hospital. Yet all that they were looking at was the actual liver. They weren't looking at the rest of the area and I'm saying why aren't you looking at the whole area you know your your digestive system you know you go through all the other organs why aren't you looking at the whole area and they basically turned around to me and said that's four hundred dollars that's a thousand and I said 
and it should not matter. Now, a, a week after I was in hospital, I was on all fours one night and I had what they think was a stone in my gallbladder and the next day I had all the symptoms of diabetes. I was never tested. They never tested my sugar levels and I was still there complaining about I had all the symptoms of diabetes and I was not tested for a week and a half. So as an outpatient, I did my own and um, asked the doctors as an outpatient, what's my sugar levels like? And they then ran some tests and then they were high. I then went to see an endocrinologist and um, who was absolutely brilliant. He's most probably why I have got the results I do now, the answers. Um, also, one of my girlfriends is a dietitian and she had asked me questions. I had fatty stools and um, so my gallbladder wasn't working either. So the endocrinologist had run a whole lot of tests anyway and I was getting sick again a week, just over a week later. He asked me to come back in. Then he got the results saying I wasn't type 1 diabetes. He said, I think you've got a blockage in your pancreas. So he did a whole lot of tests. Two days later I was back in the liver um, section of the hospital. They finally did a CT scan of the pancreas in the whole area and there was a mass in the head of my pancreas. So they needed to do an ERCP and they couldn't do that for a while being a public hospital and I had private health insurance. So I demanded I go to another hospital, a private hospital. ERCP was done the next day and it was confirmed I had pancreatic cancer. So that was, so this all started your symptoms in June, July of 18. And if my math is right, so literally within about a month, well, a little bit yes. over a month, then you were diagnosed with the official September. diagnosis. September, I was diagnosed, yeah, officially. Yeah. And I even asked them in the hospital, do I have cancer? No. The first hospital. Yeah. 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 So, and because I, you know, then looking back, I had nine of the 10 symptoms for pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, so, you mentioned a bunch of them. So it, it's fascinating. I've got a question though for you. And I know, and let me preface this by saying, I know hindsight is always twenty twenty, as we say. If you were to look back, do you think that maybe you had some of these symptoms prior to that were just, you know, being a single mom, being active, working, that just maybe just kind of thought it was just nothing or something you ate possibly, right? No, I didn't. Not at all. No. I had a little bit of the jaundice mm -hmm. and the pain, um, but I also, my back had collapsed the year before. Um, huh. So I, I've got a bulging disc with my L4 and L5. So it's in a similar area. Yeah. So I just thought it's still that pain. 
And they never found, so when they do, so when you had that back issue, did you have an MRI or a CT and they didn't see anything? There was nothing there. Wow. So in that short space of time, that's how quickly it's come. Now, my tumor, excuse me, my tumor was small Mm. and it was classified as contained. In the head of the pancreas. Yeah. And then I started chemo. They had to settle my um, gallbladder first, which took Mm -hmm. a month in hospital. That was crazy. One month? Oh, month. So what did they do for the protocol for your gallbladder? Did they, they didn't decide to remove it? Because I know a lot, a lot of times here in the United States, what's happening, and I'm not an expert on this, but uh, gallbladder is like a pretty routine procedure now where people, if they have issues digestively and it, you know, they have these gallbladder attacks, gallstones, yeah. sometimes it's sludge that kind of backs up and not necessarily a stone, but it's still kind of the same issues. They just remove them laparoscopically. Yeah. So they didn't want to do that because then they didn't know. With pancreatic cancer, of course, if you open up and take out my gallbladder, they wanted to keep it basically in there and then do the chemo just in case there was any um, other cells in that area, which then could just spread like that if I have my gallbladder removed straight away true so they wanted to calm down the gallbladder first and then i started chemo for three months and i reacted really well to the chemo i was on insulin as well as um so i was getting used to that (laughs) um because you became so, a diabetic because of the disease progression at that point. I know we. You said you went to the endocrinologist and you had symptoms of diabetes, but so did, were you diagnosed as diabetic? Yes, they don't actually classify it as. That's when they knew it wasn't because I. The results came back that I wasn't type one diabetes, mm-hmm. and that's how they. Um, my endocrinologist said, "I think you've got a blockage in your pancreas." Yeah. Because, um, yeah, of those results, those thorough results that they do that take about a week. So um, then I did three months of chemo and I reacted very well. My tumour basically um, reduced down to next to nothing, that they wouldn't even classify it as a tumour. That's amazing. It was going going down, you know, 25 to 50% every week. So it, I was doing really well. <laughs> but um, then uh, I think it was the 16th of January uh, 2019, I was booked in for a Whipple and I was opened up and they found two nodules on my liver. That they didn't see before any exams or anything or any of the testing? No. So they closed me up. I was told I had secondary liver. Two days later, it's not cancer. (laughs) 
after doing a thorough biopsy, it came back that they weren't cancerous, even though for the four people who it was looking at it was pretty sure it was. So they let me just follow you here for our audience listening at home as well. You go in for the Whipple in early 2019. They begin the procedure. And for those listening at home that don't know the Whipple, it's a pretty long surgery. It's a big surgery. It's evasive. And a lot of times what happens, unfortunately, is when surgeons don't see stuff on scans, but they see it then with the human eye, they have to kind of stop because they know that this the cancer has spread to other areas. So that basically, for you, they see the two spots in the liver and they decide that, that they're not going to go any further because it has metastasized to the liver in their, in their mind. I'm using air quotes here. If we had a vlog, people would see this. And then two days later, because they biopsy those two spots, it comes back negative for cancer. Yeah. So they could have gone through with the surgery, they, but they aborted. Yes. But they went back. <laughs> so they did go back. I, yeah. They had, however, taken out my gallbladder, which was a huge relief, mm -hmm. which I now know was causing a lot of the problems that I was having in my stomach. Um, they did go back two days later, but I was too inflamed. And my surgeon said, we could not risk it. You were too inflamed. So, um, so can I ask you a question, Helen? At that point in time, so you, you, this is, and for our audience listening at home, I, I think this is an important point. So here in the United States, and I'm, and I'm sure worldwide it's the same, you know, being able to have the Whipple and remove the, the tumor is like the ultimate goal. So when you get the ability to do that, it's huge. It's only one in five are operable, right? That's statistically here in the United States. So it's a, it's a major win. So you you get the relief of hey you're you're gonna do this surgery, and then you 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 go to sleep thinking that you're gonna have the surgery, and then when you wake up emotionally, like what was going through your mind when you realized? I'm sure after the anesthesia wears off and you kind of come to that they aborted the surgery and that these two spots were cancer and they, that's why they stopped. Well, I was actually on a lot of painkillers. <laughs> so that was probably so a good thing. That was a good thing. But um, my friends around me were crying a lot when they heard about the secondary cancer. I wasn't. Hmm. I, I was just, ooh, <laughs> I was on ketamine. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was out of it. I was still in ICU. So... Um, and then literally two days later, I was back in anyway. And I do have a brilliant surgeon who is, who's, I think, the world of. Um, he was actually trained in America. Um, so, yeah, it was difficult to process. Um, more for my son. How old is your son? He's just turned 13. So um, that's the most difficult about everything I'm going through, actually. Just, you know, he's my everything. So it's, I do everything for him. 
I needed tissues. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, but he's always been so amazing and, you know, so positive and it's okay, mum, and you'll be fine and we'll get through this and, and he has been right and we have and it's been, you know, it's been a, a, a long battle but we're still going and, um, yeah, we're fighting still. So doing the best we can. Um, yeah, so I spent a bit of time in hospital then. Um, After the second attempt? Uh, yeah, they didn't. They basically, they didn't even hardly open me up. They just said I was just too inflamed. It was I would have bled to death if he had, attempted to go back in. Yeah. So, no. so you recover from that, and then what becomes the plan after that? So then I started back on chemo, uh-huh. but they gave me the chemo a little bit too early because I think they think because I did so well in the first time and I'm pretty fit and healthy otherwise. Um, I was in excruciating pain and back in hospital pretty much straight away and um, basically all my nerves in my upper stomach had been pretty much burnt as such because the chemo had been given too early and um, and they, you know, acknowledged that. Um, so then I waited just a little bit longer and then started back in chemo again. But I didn't really have a good um, experience with chemo then. Um, I started having a reaction to one of the drugs which even though it's the same chemo I was having before, um, it's the one, I can't remember the name, the fix at all the nerve endings. So you had a lot of so neuropathy, the 5-FU? Yeah, and even if I got water behind my eyes, just the pain behind my eyes mm. was just excruciating. And pretty much every chemo, I, um, I mean, I was in bed for six days. I was pretty much a vegetable. Um, I was having chemo every fortnight. So I'd go in on a Tuesday. Um, I have a port. Mm-hmm. Um, the chemo bottle was attached to my port on a Tuesday and taken off on a Thursday. But um, many times I didn't even have the, the energy to eat or drink. So... Um, I was, yeah, really just not in a good space. Um, but it was bizarre because it was, it, I, can't, I think it was six days where I was really bad and it was like a little switch turned and I was fine. Hmm. And I was doing, you know, six kilometre walks and, I don't know what that is in American miles. It's almost uh, like four miles, I think, Maybe. or three and a half possibly. I mean, 5K I, is three, so yeah. I was walking a decent amount 
most days and, um, you know, I was li- then I was just normal, hmm. really. And then I just knew every time I had chemo, six days I was going to be sick and I couldn't even watch TV. I just looked at my wrist and just hoped that I'd get through the day. Mm. It was tough. And um, and it was also because I was having a reaction to the chemo drug. So my actual last chemo that I had in April, I was hospitalised. So I started... Um, my throat started closing up and I wasn't able to swallow, so I was hospitalised for a few days. So, and then I think it was about six weeks and uh, and then I had the Whipple on um, May the 20th. Of 2019, so almost yes. five months to the the first time they went back in to do the Whipple Mm -hmm. and everything went according to plan. They were so happy. They were doing their little happy dances. (laughs) They were so excited. I had um, 16 lymph nodes removed, not one cancer cell. They were beyond excited and I wasn't. I thought I'm not going to get excited. I, I think I'm so, not yet. Until that port comes out, then I know that I'm on the way to recovery. Even though I'm such a miss positivity and I can do everything, I just knew. You know, reality is that um, you know cancer. And especially pancreatic cancer, it just pops back up. Hmm. So, and and it did three months later. Um, so you have the Whipple in May 19. They say, okay, you're cancer-free. Mm-hmm. Quotation marks here for the folks listening at home. Um, and then on your three-month scan, does it show up again? Yeah, so then I had blood tests, yep. tumor markers. They had raised. I had a CT scan done that day. And the next day, which was October the 1st, I found out I had a tumour in my right side of my liver. Inside the liver this time. Which originated from the pancreas. They believe so. They believe so. They haven't actually been able to biopsy because it's too small. Now there's two mm-hmm. and they're together. So I'm hoping they don't have any more friends. And, um, yeah, and I um, then was put, you know, then they were looking straight away at options for clinical trials for me and they were right onto it. Like, So I'm actually at a different hospital, a cancer hospital here in Melbourne, uh-huh. um, and they're absolutely brilliant. So, ten one, you get diagnosed with this additional cancer, new cancer. Yeah. And so, from 
now or from 10-1, so from October to now, which I want to, what did you do in between October to now? Because now you're on this clinical trial that we're going to talk about here in a second, but did you do any treatment or was it just kind of trying to figure out what direction do I go? What are my options? No, they, they no treatment because actually they went to do a biopsy. So the tumor had come up on my CT scan, mm-hmm. but when they went to do a biopsy through an ultrasound, they couldn't find it. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> so it's quite deep in the right side of my liver and so they thought they would wait and that's what they did they waited another I think six weeks I had roughly I can't timing I'm not sure and then there was two but they were still quite small Mm. and still not big enough and in a position where they were it was a bit difficult to biopsy, but my tumor markers were going up very high. So they knew something was going on. They saw yes. something, but they couldn't biopsy. So yeah. you put two and two together, it equals four, right? If you can see the tumor and you see the markers going up, then you know that it is malignant and that it is cancerous uh, from from a clinical standpoint. So they give you six weeks. So that would bring you into like the middle of November towards the end of December, I guess, since de- if December 1, around that time frame, if my, if my math is yeah, right. Yeah, I, I went on holiday, I had Christmas, and then I started, when did I start clinical trials? <laughs> uh, it was four weeks ago. I've just had my fourth treatment. So the clinical trial. Let's talk about the clinical trial because before we hit record, I asked how you're feeling and you said as good as can be given the circumstances. How did you find out about this clinical trial? Because as again, before we were recording, you said you're like one of four people in the entire world or one of three people, I think, in the entire world. Or is it two or three? I forget the number. So at the moment, I'm not sure what date it it is now, but um, I was they found me firstly um and i think because it is the first human trial Mm -hmm. it's actually um from america this trial and i can't remember which hospital it's come from but basically um i was the first one in the world to start this human trial and then there's a lady in Texas, uh, another one started in Spain this week, and then there was another one on the 9th of this of February starting, and then there's a few other countries around the world where they'll gradually um, start patients on this trial. So, so, no, go ahead. So I do know I'm the only pancreatic cancer patient on this trial um i do know that the lady in texas is having similar side effects to me um but she was hospitalized for five days on the first round and um i'm hospitalized it was meant to be just overnight but because 
I do live alone. Mm. Um, I have my son 50% and he's a, his dad's actually bike like lucky Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Mm. I'm in hospital Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So the, so, clini- the clinical trials administered in the hospital, you stay over while they're two nights while the drugs are being administered. And what is the name of the clinical trial? Can you share that? Sting. I'm sorry? Sting? Sting. I think it's Sting 5 or something, VI. And I got a question for you. How did So you said they found you. Was this yeah. in collaboration with the facility there in Melbourne? Um, I, I'm not, yeah, so the, there's a research um, company, well, the research group in Melbourne, um, and they're working closely with the team in America. That's all I know. Um, my oncologist, she is, she works between the two hospitals that I've been a patient at. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also very much into research. Um, her husband is a researcher. Um, and so she knows a lot what is going on and she does raise a lot of money for awareness for research, um, her and her husband. So, um, I think I was chosen because I'm young, fit, healthy. Otherwise I don't have any, uh, tumor in my pancreas, Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the trial has to be for someone who has, um, tumors, developed tumors, advanced tumors. So it's putting a virus into your body. This trial is. So the side effects, I know we talked before are pretty, pretty nasty, right? So can you share, uh, you know, with the audience at home, maybe some of the side effects that you've been dealing with? And the only reason I bring this up, Helen, because I think, you know, here in America, people hear clinical trials and I, 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 you know, clinical trials are important, but I also, they are experimental. Not of all of them work. Not everyone gets a clinical trial if it's a, if it's a contained group. So I, I think it's, it's something that, you know, we've talked a little bit on the podcast, but for someone who's actually going through a clinical trial, it's important, I think, to share what you're experiencing because I think people need to understand there's there's kind of a trade-off sometimes, um, you know, with a clinical trial because of the side effects or the efficacy, depending on where the trial is, if it's a clinical trial, phase one, phase two, phase three, you know, there's certain goals and aims of those trials. Um Naturally, they, they are hoping that the drugs do work, but they are they do have specific aims in those trials to understand efficacy and dosage and stuff like that. So patients have to be aware of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, it is the side effects are like that of having a virus. Um, I I'm very um. I'm monitored very well. 
um, because even with uh, having a virus put into you, um, the side effects of your main organs, inflammation and everything can cause other problems. Mm-hmm. Luckily for me, um, my body is reacting well to that. For me personally, I get so there's a lot of blood taken out, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, even the nurses said, I've never seen so much blood taken out of one person. <laughs> and I've had, I have had um, blood transfusions because of that. My hemoglobin's been quite low. So I go into the hospital on a Tuesday. Um, um, the team are in, un, unbelievable. I, ha- I have a huge team looking after me. And um, they know exactly what to do and they now know what my reactions are. So each time it is getting easier. Hmm. So I had the injection put in through a cannula and they keep my port to take blood samples. To access for blood, yeah. Yeah, because basically... Uh, the injection, the drug takes only two minutes to administer and literally one minute after I have about 10 tubes of blood taken. Oh, my God. I think it's one or two minutes after. Then five minutes after, another 10 tubes. 15 minutes, another 10 tubes. So It's a lot of blood. <laughs> It's a lot of blood. Three hours after um, I've had the injection, I start getting the side effects. My body starts getting very cold. I start shaking. I've put I have many blankets on me. I'm given certain drugs to help stop the shaking, the fever. I'll have fever that will last for six hours. Um, But after a few hours, it's okay. When they settle that shaking, Mm. I do feel okay. I do. I'm incredibly fatigued, like ridiculously this one actually, I slept all the way through it, except for the shaking part. So the shaking's uncontrolled. It just comes on. It's kind of, I guess, I would assume it's like the body's own defense mechanism against the virus that just causes you to shake. Yeah. I wouldn't say is it violent sh- shaking, or is it just like a like a tick almost? Like someone would have like a tick, and they would just constantly no, shake. It's it's full on shaking. The first one is, and then I will get them throughout the week when I get. Um, bouts of fever where I'll get start feeling cold. I have to take Panadol track straight away. Mm-hmm. I'll put blankets on and I get a bit cold. I usually then fall asleep and then I wake up and then I'm hot and sweaty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the fatigue is really challenging. Um but they're working on that. I've actually just missed a few phone calls from my medical team. Um, just they check on me all the time. 
dough. But last night I was in bed pretty much, yeah, with high temps. Hmm. So lots of um, – and then, of course, another thing that happens is I can have – it. your body is so sensitive. Um, so I have small little problems from my shoulder from – just a few little injuries I've done, mm. it escalates the pain a hundred times more when the three hours after that needle goes in. So I'm on a lot of painkillers too during that time. But so you're four treatments in. How many more do you have to go? And, and is there going to be a point where they will look at scans and yeah. see what the response is or have they done that already? No. So I have two more and then we will be scanned. If, um, if I feel like I'm not able to cope, they will scan me earlier. So... They tried me on some steroids. Steroids isn't really good for immunotherapy. Um, so that does get rid of a lot of my side effects. Um, so that's what my team will be ringing me today to whether to put me on a steroid today to give me some energy so I have some quality of life and less side effects. So the goal with this would be at the end of the six weeks to see some sort of change in the tumors. Oh, imagine. That's what I'm doing it for. Yeah. I'm doing it. You know, there's, there needs to be some hope for pancreatic cancer patients and I'll do whatever it takes. Well, it's, that's a very powerful statement, Helen, that you just said, um, in putting yourself for the, the greater good of others. Um, I've got a couple questions here and I, I want to just shift a little bit. Yeah. You've been through a lot in a very short period of time, which you know. Yeah. And there's a couple of tippets that you've shared and some of the things that you've said that I've taken notes, but... Are there strategies that have kind of gotten you through all this during this time, like waking up on a daily basis and doing certain things or um, things that kind of carried over from your life before that you continue to do that have been super helpful that we could maybe share with our audience? Well, I try to look at all the positive things in life and I've really, one thing I had to do is, um, I had to get rid of the negativity, anyone that was um, not bringing anything positive into my life, mm -hmm. friends and family. Um, that's been difficult because as it happens a lot with cancer patients, sometimes family members and friends don't like it, that you get all the attention and they're not. And I've had that happen a lot with in my family. So I'm pretty much 
I've got an amazing group of friends um, and that keeps me going. And, of course, I've got my son. Um, I do believe that I got this to help others. You know, for Awareness Month last uh, November, I spent time um, in contact with other pancreatic cancer patients from all over the world and we really do help one another and the support and I've because I have such a great team and I'm so involved with what I'm doing I'm happy that I'm helping other people and people have said to me if it wasn't for you I wouldn't have done that you've most probably saved my life so I know I'm doing some good in getting as much awareness out there and trying to help people because there's a lot of people misdiagnosed out there there's a lot of people that because of the statistics, give up. I try not to look at the statistics because I don't believe in them. I believe in, you know, you've got to make a decision for yourself that you will do this. I don't believe in the word terminal unless there is no other possibility of any treatment available so I will not use some of those words in my vocabulary and and my life um and try and be as positive as I can you know it's a beautiful world so most of the time <laughs> yes well I, I think what you just said was so powerful though and one of the things and again I'm taking notes here but you know, your, your vocabulary that you decide to use, right? And how powerful that can be by not using certain words. But you said something that you didn't believe in stats. And I want to ask this question tying in with this. Did you, when you first got diagnosed, did you go out to the internet? No. Why not? No. I, um, I actually do not know. That's, actually, there's no right or wrong to that question. It's just a fascinating. I actually think my maybe someone at the hospital said, "Don't Google anything." And the first time I came across stats was when I was looking for a fun run or something to do mm. for pancreatic cancer awareness, and then I saw the statistics. And I was upset for a moment, and then I went, nah, I'm not going to be one of them. <laughs> so, so time out. You get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and then one of the first things you do is to go find a run to, for pancreatic cancer. No, this was a while after. Oh, yeah, okay. But still, though, you're still, you're still in this, and then you, you find you're trying to look for a run. That's awesome. <laughs> I have done a few runs and walks, but... <laughs> <laughs> for different cancers as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my son signed me up to a brain cancer 
one when I was just had my whipple done. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I said, "Let's get." A, I, he wanted to sign up for um, because one of the boys at his school had passed away from uh, brain cancer, oh. and they do his school do uh, are very involved in this um, walk run. And he said, oh, Mum, can we please do it? And I said, let me get through this first. Anyway, he's got the computer on my bed at the hospital signing us up. Oh. <laughs> oh, so, and we did it. <laughs> Talk about setting a goal, like knowing that you got to be ready to, to do this run and, and be ready it's for it. It was a struggle, believe me. But you it finished. It was a struggle, but um, it was something he wanted to do and we do it together, so... You know, <laughs> that's so and awesome. It was, it, was, it was actually very emotional because I was all these people. There was thousands and thousands of people coming out to do this run, raising awareness, and I just thought this is just beautiful because we. I mean, there's we haven't had cancer in our family really. Like, um, there's no pancreatic cancer and. There's no, oh, I've had an uncle with melanoma. Hmm. So um, that's it. Did they, so, when you were diagnosed, and this is something that's been pretty big here in the United States, it's actually a, a, sta a federal mandate now here in the United States when anyone comes in that is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and this goes back to 2019, they have to perform genetic testing on the patient. So was that... I don't know enough about in Australia, but no. was, so that's not, but was it ever brought no. up in any for you? Yes. So it's quite recent. Um, it was brought up for me. My oncologist is trying to get it that the government um, make it mandatory Correct. that everyone with pancreatic cancer gets tested because, um, and I wasn't aware of it um, when I got my new diagnosis, mm -hmm. I actually got contacted by um, a, a wonderful woman in Pennsylvania, um, Kim, who has pancreatic cancer and she has the BRCA2 gene. Yep. And she's on Limpaza now, the drug, the yep. tablet, and she's pretty much clear. So, of course, and then a guy in Canada contacted me the same night. Mm -hmm. um, who was following me on Instagram and and so then I spoke to my oncologist about it um, but we have to pay for it here um, but I didn't have the genes so you but did I do the testing you didn't have any of the genetic mutations no but I have then told other people about it um like uh, my friend in the UK, Emma, who mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, yeah. and um, she does have the gene. Yeah. I mean, so I, I know here in the United States, it, it accounts for about 10% 10 10 of the cases of mm -hmm. pancreatic cancer here in the United States have some sort of genetic mutation, a BRCA1 or 2, uh, yeah. ATM, Palpy 1 or 2, Lynch syndrome, and then there's, I believe, one or two more. Um, there's six or seven gene mutations. And we've had a couple of podcasts with geneticists and scientists that talk about this. And, you know, I think science as a whole for all diseases, not just pancreatic cancer, 
is going in that direction because everyone has a particular genetic makeup and it's different yeah. from family to family. And, and we're, we're, it's almost like family. You're, you're given the family. You don't get to choose the family. So genes are the same way. You're given those genes based on your, your mother and father. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's a, well, I was going to say, unfortunately, when you meet someone, you don't necessarily say, can I see your gene panel? Uh, have you had genetic testing? Uh, do you have any of these gene mutations? Uh, maybe eventually dating will get to that. Uh, but currently, that's not the state of dating. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's an idea for someone to come up with a, a dating app that you know, uh, differentiates people by their genetic markings. But so in, in, in getting back to uh, the conversation here on, on the gene testing, um, it is a big deal here in the United States. I hope that globally it does become a bigger deal. And I think that's, you know, usually the United States is kind of the poster child for what happens elsewhere in some cases, um, you know, with regards to disease prevention. And, and that's an area where we are really invested here at Project Purple with, you know, early detection, because I think if we can help identify these folks that have these genes that are at risk, then hopefully we can, you know, find people early on in the staging, give them the opportunity to have surgery, and also, like you said, there's treatment protocols that are working really well with that population. So it's it's really important, but it's frustrating. I have to say, Helen, hearing your story, and I'm sure our listeners here in the United States would agree. I mean, you mentioned before, like you were in there for two and a half weeks and you know, you had jaundice, which here in the United States it's frustrating when we talk to patients and they have all these symptoms and then they go, I was jaundice. And then the doctor finally says, oh, you have pancreatic cancer. So that they didn't pick up in that first, I know it was a different hospital than where you were, that it wasn't picked up early on. You know, that 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 kind of should have been a, a light bulb that went off that, you know, knows. Now, the good news was two weeks later, you know, they finally diagnosed it, which we've heard stories here in the United States where, you know, some people go six months. I mean, I know for my dad, you know, it was about a six month time frame from when he was symptomatic to when he was diagnosed. Yeah, I know people over a year. Yeah, and which misdiagnosed is... with pancreatitis and stuff. Like, yeah, it's shocking. Um, I was actually when they told me, I was actually relieved. I had an answer. Yeah. I didn't know what it was or, you know, the effects on what pancreatic cancer was at the time. But I was just happy that I actually had an answer to all these problems that I was having because, yeah, I very rarely get sick. Um, I just get the big stuff like cancer, <laughs> meningitis, <laughs> DVTs. <laughs> You're an overachiever, as they say, Helen. You're overachieving. <laughs> I've got a couple other questions here that I want to throw at you. You mentioned your friends a lot. And this comes up often um, just in conversation, but it's come up here on the podcast as well. And I want to pose this question to you. You mentioned how important your friends have been. And the question would be, what is the one thing or the the best things, it can be plural, that your friends have done for you during this time? And the reason I ask the question is because far too often we hear from the survivors like, uh, you know, 
so-and-so did this for me and it was the best thing. And then from families and friends, I hear a lot of times, and we get the question here is like, I want to do something really nice for my friend. What should I do? Yeah. So actually one of my girlfriends put together a group called the Hells Angels. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Mm -hmm. That's my nickname. (laughs) (laughs) She actually has uh, incurable cancer herself. Wow. And we worked together in advertising. She was a suit. Um, So she put together a plan so people would come over and visit me, um, take me to appointments, pick me up from appointments, drop off food, wash my bed linen, do things like that. Um, so I didn't, I don't have to think about those things. Um, that has helped hugely, <laughs> enormously. So, and to think someone who's going through all this stuff herself made the time to do it. That's so powerful. And I I think friends of people that are battling any cancer, and, and I think this goes for any cancer, often think like, you know, they, they didn't know, don't know what to say or they don't know what to do, but just helping with the day-to-day stuff yeah. is just so impactful. Yeah, I actually wrote a, um, a post on Insta, um, little while back saying cancer isn't contagious (laughs) yeah because i found a lot of people just disappeared and especially after i had the whipple they're like oh you're done now see ya Mm. and it was like a mass exit or i know people find it hard to what to say um and they're going through their own things or could bring up um past history, things that they've gone through themselves, I don't know, all different things. Um, But that was, um, I just, I I was hearing from so many people in the cancer community whose partners had left them, whose um, brothers and sisters don't speak to them anymore, and... These were all in closed groups and I went, wait a minute, how is everyone meant to know about this if we don't tell them? So I did. I did get quite a lot of phone calls that day. (laughs) 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 I I didn't mean it like that. (laughs) But it is, I mean, and and it's not only cancer too. This happens Mm. in lots of different scenarios, whether it's a marriage breakup or someone has other types of like, you know, they could be in a wheelchair bound or have MS or whatever. It's, um, it, it just doesn't happen with cancer, but I just thought I'd put it up there. This is my experience. Um, and, um, yeah, just to let others know how difficult it is because it's very lonely. You know, I do have a lot of friends, um, but it's still very lonely. I spend a lot of time alone. You're in bed a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. So, 
Well, that's so profound because I think, you know, keeping it normal and doing the things, and I think you're right on. I mean, like, it, it could be someone who gets into a bad car accident, but, you know, the, the people that keep it normal and, and, you know, and cancer's, you know, just something that is uh, something that happens in our life. It doesn't yeah. change you. You're going through this, but you probably haven't changed much, you know, of who yeah. you are. Yeah. Um, so the, the normalcy of life and doing the, the normal things is probably the most important thing right now in terms of, you know, friends and family. Versus trying to do something really special or something, you know, outrageous that, you know, is going to put a smile on your face, you know, to try to think of something like that. Yeah. Well, I wrote cancer's a word. It's not a sentence because that's what it is. It's, you know, it doesn't change you. You know, you are going to be unwell and things aren't going to be the same, but you as a person, you still need your friends and your family and your loved ones and, normality as much as possible because everything's taken away from you you know yeah I, I was very independent I I had great savings I had you know I was traveling all the time always I had a brilliant life and now I have to rely on the government for money and for my GoFundMe page and um it's financially it's very tough incredibly tough there's not the help here in australia i'm not sure what it's like in america but there there is no help financially so i have used all my savings and um my friend started up a gofundme account for me and i've just been getting by on that well, there was just a, a recent article in, in one of the, the medical journals about the cost of cancer to the families that battle cancer. And this is just cancer as a whole. And I think it was in the article said somewhere along the lines of the, the cost of cancer to families is in the billions, four to six billion dollars in, in debt that this is creating. And, you know, is this the right thing that, you know, people should you know, do naturally when you're in this situation, you do whatever you can, right? As you know, and I remember from my family situation, whatever we had to do, and we were blessed that my dad had private insurance and then he had, you know, secondary insurance and they had some savings. Um, he was retired, which I think was helpful. But still, though, the cost of fighting any cancer has just kind of gotten a little bit out of control globally. Um, yeah, so my it. family left me. They couldn't handle that I had cancer. Mm. So I just, you know, I haven't seen them since June. Wow. Um, so uh, I don't have a very big family, but um, in Australia. So that's been really tough. Um, you also, the negativity that comes with certain people and what you learn about people when you've yeah. got cancer is really an eye-opener. Um, I didn't know my, I was not expecting that at all from my family. So, at all. 
but I'm lucky I've got my friends and I've got the most beautiful son. I, I seriously have the most incredible son. I mean, uh, you know, it's really tough sometimes. Last week I was, I was sick. He's holding my hair up. You know, he has to see stuff like that. You know, he's making me tea and checking my blood sugar levels because sometimes I don't have the energy. He's just being the most wonderful kid. Just so amazing. I wish I could do more for him. So hopefully, you know, we can do stuff together more. Hopefully I'll win this battle. <laughs> well, I think that day will come, and I can say this to you, Helen, and uh, from my own personal experience, when I watched my dad go through his journey, um, it inspired me and made me the person that I am today. So you may not see it, but I'm sure you are molding your son in an unbelievable, positive way that you probably could never imagine. And I hope yeah. you, you you get to see him grow as a, as a young adult and an old man. Um, it's my dream. <laughs> so keep doing what you're doing. Well, at least now I'm actually, I'm having, only recently, I haven't for about a year, but in the last, I'd say, three weeks, I've been having dreams that, about my future. And mm. I haven't had dreams about my future for over a year. So that's interesting. Do you think the the treatments have anything to do with that? Because we've had people on that have talked about, like, you know, being on the chemotherapy and how they have had dreams. Oh, okay. I... I, I I was just, um, that was one thing I really noticed, that I started having dreams about me older and doing things and travelling with Julian and, 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 and I haven't had those for such a long time. Um, so that was positive. <laughs> That's awesome. I try and look at them all, all the positives. That's, you have to. I got three questions left. And you okay. mentioned this a couple times, social media. Yeah. And I know that could be a double-edged sword in some ways, you know, depending on how you look at it. But I know you've yeah. mentioned it in a very positive way. What has, yeah. and naturally we connected via social media, so I look at it as a positive, but how has that impacted your life and your journey? Well, it, getting in contact with other people who are going through the same as me, um, it's just the support we give each other. Not only the support too, is different trials that are available in different countries and the different offerings to people and what's working and learning about the different types of pancreatic cancers too because it's not just pancreatic cancer. There's so many different types and, I mean, I actually, so I, Emma in the UK, I actually got her to send me all of her medical um, information 
and I gave it to my team, my medical team here. Wow. Because my surgeon was taught by the top surgeon in America for her type of surgery she needs. Now, she's been given no, uh, she's been given no help at all. Hmm. Um, and she didn't know about the um, genetics testing either mm -hmm. and she's now positive. So it's things like that. We help each other. We get one another. We can have our good days and our bad days and I see it's like, like we just understand each other. I am in contact with quite a few people whose family members are going through and they want answers, mm -hmm. which I can't, of course, give them. But I do say to people, if you aren't happy with the information you're getting or what, you know, the treatment you're receiving, or if it's not working or um, you've been offered no help, then get a second opinion. And that has been some great advice that I have learned from other people going through all different types of cancers because some people just don't know enough about pancreatic cancer or they just like, um, and, and also with clinical trials too, people who follow me on my blog or on social media and Instagram um, weren't aware they would never offer clinical trials through their hospitals. So they've contacted other hospitals now to see what's available for them. And now they've got options where they didn't have those before. They were given like, oh, you've got six to nine months to live. Hmm. Well, most of these people are still living. So it's so powerful how that can happen though. Like, you know, like this vehicle that's free for anyone to use and yeah, there's, there's, there's negatives to it. Um, but the positives far away, the negatives, I mean, we're, we're saving lives and we're yeah. bringing awareness and the fact that people know they're not alone and they have these friends that they connect and you're changing, you know, for Emma there, you're, you're changing her life. It's, it's so fascinating to me how that happens. And I don't think anyone originally thought of that when probably when they designed social media or, you know, Instagram or Facebook for that matter, or Twitter or whatever it is. Well, I'm in contact with, you know, a girl in Nepal, um, uh, one in Indonesia, um, many in Europe, um, and of course, the UK, because they're not part of Europe anymore. <laughs> and um, America Brexit. and South America and Canada, you know, there's a whole global group of us, and we're just trying to help each other and give hope to one another that, and or to their loved ones. So, um, hoping that you know we can improve awareness out there and what's available because there's a lot more out there available than um, people know of. It's so powerful. I've got one more question and then one more thing that we're going to ask you to do so that people can connect with you. But this is your answer. It's somewhat of a loaded question, um, but the way you define it is, you know, your answer, there's no right or wrong. 
and we ask this to all of our survivors and fighters, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition? <laughs> never had anyone laugh, Helen. <laughs> I've never had anyone ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. This is this is the part of the doing a live podcast that's recorded. Like we, this is these are the moments that make this real. We are we are all about being genuine and being real. There's no fluff on this podcast, and this is why I think our audience loves it so much. <laughs> well, the problem with pancreatic cancer is it's an unknown cancer. So there's lack of funding. There's lack of research. Is there's, uh, you know, the statistics of survival um, aren't good, um, but they're improving. Um, but the, there's so much not known about it and I think that's why I tried to create this awareness campaign on my, myself last um November because so many of us did have the same symptoms, all different ages. You know, they think, oh, you're too young to have pancreatic cancer. But I know people in their 20s mm -hmm. with pancreatic cancer. I know people, you know, in 30s, 40s. There's quite a few of us. Um, it's the unknown cancer and it's like and it just pops up in other organs and we don't know why it does that. So it's um, there needs to be a lot more research, a lot more awareness and a lot of more help from community and the government as well um, to, to make this as important as other cancers because why isn't the pancreas pancreatic cancer in, as important as breast cancer. You know, we, and, you know, everyone loves breasts and penises. They get the most funding. You know, why don't we concentrate on the other organs? Yeah. My, <laughs> mom's, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor, so I do not feel any guilt in saying that breast cancer gets its fair share. My mom is alive. They do an amazing job. I know it is still, um, you know, not 100% survival. There, there are still uh, family members that are at risk, and, and you know, the, it's not um, a cancer that is curable, as I said, 100%. But pancreatic cancer deserves a lot more, Absolutely. a lot more money, a lot more yeah. research. I think um, here in the United States, there is a very large discrepancy in terms of funding that goes into um, breast cancer, that goes into pancreatic cancer from the, the government, which is a big funder of cancer research here in the United States. They, they, they actually fund about 80% of cancer research. You know, so I, I, I believe me, I get it. And I, I don't feel bad saying that because, you know, my mom's a survivor and she's here because of that. But I lost my dad and, you know, the pancreatic cancer deserves its day. Yeah, it's like it's like with pancreatic cancer. It's like, did we get the wrong cancer or something? You know, why isn't our cancer as important to put the money into, the research into? Yeah, I mean, you know, I... 
not to bring up politics, but I guess we'll bring up politics. I think from the political standpoint, I know the answer. And I think none of the politicians want to stick their neck out for one cause because they don't want to alienate their constituency, right? Because their constituency is made up of, you know, a diversity of people that are touched by all diseases. And I get that. Um, But I think when things hit critical mass, which we have hit critical mass here in the United States, um, in some states in particular, it's already, you know, number two in terms of, um, you know, mortality and in terms of occurrences, it's, it's increasing. So, you know, our, our day is here. Like we need more funding and we need more support. We also need, I think, something, and I'll go on a bit of a rant here. We also need pharma to start to step up and do more. Because um, I've always said it's kind of like this three-legged stool problem. Like we've got one leg of the three legs that is kind of firing in all of its systems. That's the 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 foundations, the the private foundations, the groups that are, you know, we, we, we're involved in the World Pancreatic Cancer Group. There's groups from Australia, groups from the, the Europe uh, countries, um, groups here in North America that we all, there's I think now up to 84 groups worldwide that are trying to find a cure for this in their various countries and we're trying to work together to do that. So that's there, but we need pharma to come to the table and we need governments to kind of increase their involvement, um, which can be done fairly quickly. You know, the governments can can change this thing, I think, sooner than later because of the access to some of these systems. I mean, Australia has a public health system, as you mentioned. They can institute change really, really quick. So I, I appreciate your feedback on that. My last thing for you, and probably the most important thing, listeners that are listening to podcasts, whether it's the immunotherapy trial you're on, something that was mentioned that want to connect with you. It might be someone that's going through what you've gone through back in 2018 when you were first diagnosed, or maybe someone who's at a crossroads and would love to talk to you more about the immunotherapy trial. What's the best place for them to connect with you? I know you mentioned Instagram, you mentioned the blog. Yeah, Instagram's... um the best place um and my instagram is helmet g h-e-l-m-a-c-g which is short for helen mcgregor correct awesome <laughs> and and i've got to say since we connected on social media via instagram there's been a realness in your in your posting and i know you have an advertising background which i'm sure helps but it's so impactful to see and to read what you're writing, um, you know, with your journey. And and I'll, I'll say this, I'll, I'll end this thought on this. Thank you for doing that because you don't have to. You have a son. You could spend your time, and, and I'm, I'm not saying you don't spend time, but you, you don't have to go to social media. You don't have to raise awareness but you consciously have made a decision to allow your life to be shared with the public uh, to help raise awareness for other people. So thank you for doing that, Helen. And I'm gonna end on this note. I, I've been taking notes. I, I'll show you because we can see, these are all my notes here that I've been taking. And there's a couple of things that I wanna just say here that were so 
impactful on me hearing you say this. You said you just wanted to help others going through this immunotherapy, and you explained how you're shaking and you have these fevers and you can't move for days upon days, which is just so powerful to have this selfless attitude for the betterment of other people potentially down the line. And probably one of the most powerful things I heard you say was cancer is not is a word, it is not a sentence. So with that, thank you so much for being on our podcast, for sharing your story. I know it's not easy. What you're going through is hell, um, but there is a lot of light at the end of the tunnel and you are a beautiful human being. Um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep the thinking, the positivity. All of that is going to get you through this. Thank you so much. <laughs> really appreciate it. No, thank you, Helen. And as we say here on the Project Purple Podcast, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm-hmm.